Well, friends, good evening and welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. My name is James. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's a privilege for me week by week to be able to share in the scriptures with you as we learn together about God's love for us and its implications for the the details of our lives. Uh, A warm welcome to two particular groups. First of all, if you're new with us, if this is your first night, we're just really glad you're here, really glad you came on out. Lots of things you could do with your evening, and we're really grateful for the opportunity to, to spend it with you as together we meet with God. We hope that you'll leave here feeling like it was, it was good for you to have been here. Second uh, special welcome I want to give is just to whoever put in the anonymous prayer request on, on page 10 of our worship guide. You see it there, anonymous. Pray for people struggling with depression. It is exhausting, lonely, and fearful. Yes, it is. And I want you to know that personally I understand that it is, and many others in our church have experienced the same thing. And of course, it makes sense perhaps for the uh, prayer request to be anonymous, but just want you to know that your, your story and your struggle doesn't need to be anonymous. It doesn't have to be a, a lonely thing. There are other people in this church who would love to come alongside you and help you uh, through this journey. We all need one another to help walk each other home. And so uh, if you are struggling alone with this, uh, give the church a call. Let one of the pastors know. Uh, We would love to uh, see how we can come alongside you and help you in this season. Now though, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus. If you want to pull out a pew Bible from the rack in front of you or turn in your phone or other device to the book of Titus, uh, we are nearing the end of our series in this book this week and then one more next week. And if you turn with me to page 998, you'll find Titus chapter 3, where we're going to read verse 1 through 8 of, of this chapter. So let me, uh, let me read it to us, giving our attention to God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. As we come to him now, let's first bow our heads together and pray. Father, I'm grateful that you know each one of us this evening and you know our circumstances precisely, whether we are in the darkness of depression or the joys of of celebration. You know us and you know what we need to hear from you this evening. So Lord, we know that you always speak perfectly, but we ask that you would give us the ears to hear that word that you have for us tonight. Challenge us where we need to be challenged, encourage us where we need to be built up. Be with us in these moments, Lord, that we might really meet with you. We pray that we would approach this time with that sense of anticipation in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Okay, runners, uh, joggers, general exercisers, question for you. Have you ever eaten a donut while on a run? Anyone? Any? I have one. Okay, oh, I see two, right? Was this a hand or just a, just a chin scratch? Okay, so we have, we have at least two in the building. That's, that's good. Uh, this morning we only had one, and so I was alone in my weirdness. I have, in fact, eaten a donut while on a run by the end of this sermon. Uh, my goal is to compel you that it's a really good idea. Uh, but first... Um, to the Bible, right? First to our text in Titus chapter 3, where Paul is going to call us, all of us here tonight, not just some people thousands of years ago, but you and I, as we meet together this evening, he's going to call us to embrace the main theme of his letter to Titus. Namely, he's going to call us to embrace the gospel life of joyful obedience, He's going to call us to connect the dots from the things that we say we believe to the actual life that we live. He's going to call us to connect the dots from the gospel that we say we believe to the gospel life that we should then live. He wants us to understand how it is that grace changes everything. So let's look at it together. Starts in verse 1. Look there with me. Verse 1 of Titus 3, page 998, where Paul gives us a command. He says, remind them. Now remember, Paul is writing to Titus, who's uh, ministering to Christians on the island of Crete. But these words are still applicable to us sitting here this, this evening. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every." good work. Now, as Paul is reminding us to be this way, he is deliberately contrasting how he wants us to be with another group of people that came up earlier in the letter. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, Paul addresses this group of corrupt leaders, and, and Paul is directly contrasting the behavior we should have with the behavior that they demonstrate. They were rebellious troublemakers who we read were, quote, unfit for any good work. Well, as they are unfit for any good work, so we are to be ready for every good work. Paul says, remember those jokers? Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Instead, verse 2, be model citizens. See it there? Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to all people. Now, isn't this just some, some earthy, practical, day-to-day wisdom for life from the Bible. Paul's saying, be a model citizen by, by embodying kindness and love, particularly in the language that you use toward other people, particularly with the, the words that you use to address other people. Of course, this would start with those who are, who are closest to us. We think of our roommates, and we think, okay, we shouldn't be gossiping about them or tearing them down. Instead, we should be thinking of ways to encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. Not just our roommates, though, also with our, with our spouses. See, here's one of the bad things that happens when you get married, is that you become so familiar with each other that you take each other for granted, and because you know that they're, you know, they can't or at least won't leave, you end up speaking to them like you never speak to anybody else. So my wife calls me this week, but I'm in the middle of working, right? I'm in the middle of some sort of project that I'm really focused on, and so here's my conversation. She's talking about something, she's telling me about something, and I say, yeah, mm-hmm, yep, okay, Bye. Right? Right? 
nothing horrible, didn't give her any abuse, didn't, you know, I just spoke to her in a way that I'd never speak to anybody else, right? I'm like at least enough of a fraud to pretend I care about most people when they call, right? But, but with Rosie, I just wonder, now, it's, I know it's not just me, because you'll know whenever you're in the office, whenever you're around a group of people, you can always tell when someone's speaking to their wife or to their husband. Why? Because they speak like I did. Yep, okay, right, got to go, bye. And it just ought not be that way. It, it ought not be that way. I should be looking for ways to, to build this woman up. The number one priority in my life, the greatest passion in my soul. It should be looking for ways to, to encourage her with my words. Of course, that extends not just to roommates and spouses, but also just to friends and um, especially, you know, like um, teens, uh, kids. Never text something that you wouldn't say in person. Right? Uh, never text something that you wouldn't say in, in person uh, in front of their mother, Right? And be careful, be thoughtful about the words and language that you use. Now, here's the problem. Um, this command, to be thoughtful with our words, yeah, it starts with those who are close to us, but it also extends to those um, that we have challenges with. Because see what Paul says? He says, speak evil of no one. Not just speak, e- you know, don't speak evil of, like, the people you like. But don't speak evil even of the people that you don't like. The people that you find challenging, the people that you find um, difficult, whether personally or politically or otherwise, uh, remember your mom is teaching, right? If you don't have anything nice to say, say nothing. Now, okay, there may be a time where we need to speak up, and there may be a time when mercy and justice call us to speak up on behalf of others. There may even be times when we need to confront others in a kind of prophetic way. But even those, in, in those instances, we shouldn't be contentious. We shouldn't demonize our opponents. Um, here's the way to think about it. Uh, never say anything that you don't think Jesus would agree with. Right? So, so imagine Jesus is with you. <laughs> and then remember that he actually is. Okay? And don't say stuff that he's going to be like, bro, that's, no, that's not right. You, you missed it, right? So speak in a way, use your words in a way that Jesus himself would add his amen as he is standing there with you. Paul gives the positive alternative to this command in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, hey, Christian, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. There should be something really distinctive about the way in which Christians use their words, seasoned with salt. We're to be humble. We're to be gentle. There's to be a a tenderness about the way in which we we speak. And can you imagine if if we joyfully obeyed this command, the kind of cultural and missional impact that would have? Like, we live in a day of of, of outrage. We live in a day of polarization. We live in a day where one side's rhetoric is completely unreasonable and inflamed, only to be met by an equal measure of unreasonableness and inflamedness um, from the other side, right? Can you, can you imagine if, if Christians were just known for being different? If, if we were known for being gracious, if we were known for having our speech seasoned with salt, Paul says that's who we should be. Be these kind of model citizens. Be living examples of kindness and love. Well, okay, we say, uh, why? 
Why, Paul? I mean, that's okay, it sort of sounds good, but it also sounds hard. Uh, why is it that we should live this way? Now, Paul's answer is going to take us into the meat of our sermon together this evening. His answer is a little surprising. He doesn't say do it because, you know, that'll sort of, you know, make God happy. And he doesn't say do it because that'll definitely work. No, the, the, the reason he gives us, the reason that we should be model citizens, according to Paul, is simply because of the gospel. Let's explore that together by looking at verse 3. See in verse 3 he there, he says, Hey, we ourselves, so me and you, remember, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What Paul is doing here is, he is he's inviting every Christian to remember where they came from. Jesus didn't come from the glories of heaven down to this earth to find you at the top of the moral totem pole. Jesus came from the glories of of heaven to earth to find us at the very bottom of the totem pole. Jesus didn't come to save us because like we kind of made his varsity team. Uh, He came to save us because we were in desperate need of saving. Absolutely no better than anyone else. We used to be like those corrupt leaders in Crete and like much of the world today. We were rebellious. We slandered. We quarreled. We oppressed others. We were caught up in and contributed to that cycle of hate that decimates lives. But now, verse 4, look, but something has happened. Now that we've been forgiven and freed to live a better way, There is grace for us to do so. That's the point of verses 4 through 7. Now, if you put one finger on the start of verse 4 and the other finger at the end of verse 7, right, just see the paragraph that's between your two fingers here. Uh, In the original Greek, that's all one long sentence. And it's a somewhat intricate and we could say convoluted sentence because Paul is trying to explain a couple of different ideas at the same time. So let's see if we can catch the flow of this long sentence uh, together. Starts off in verse 4 where Paul tells us that we should live differently. Why? Because the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared in Jesus. Okay, why should our lives be different? Because of the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus. But as soon as Paul begins to answer this question, in verse 5, he interrupts his train of thought. He interrupts his his answer to this question by starting to unpack and underline aspects of the gospel, which I love because it's like he's saying, okay, why should you live a good life? Well, because the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus has appeared. But whoa, whoa, I hadn't been thinking about Jesus. And now the gospel squirrel has arrived. I'm going to be distracted for a little while because I want to talk about him. I want to, t- okay, I'll get back to the question in a second, verse 4, we'll get, we'll get there, we'll get there in verse 8, but first, verses 5, 6, 7, let's talk a little bit more about Jesus. And so that's what he does. Look, he says in verse 5, um, this Jesus has saved us. Why has he saved us? Well, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we made it unto varsity, but according to his mercy. He then develops this thought in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 by describing how believers have been washed and cleansed by the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like God sort of took us halfway and then we were able to work the rest of our way towards salvation. It's not like God took us out of the pit and now we cleaned ourselves up. No, God found us at the bottom and then His Holy Spirit cleaned us up. 
And the Spirit has been poured out, not in small measure, but you see it there in verse 6, in abundance. He has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so the result comes in verse 7. We're justified by grace. That's what the text says. We're made right with God, not on the basis of the things we do, but on the basis of his love for us and the things he has done. And not only have we been justified, but see, we've become heirs. Verse 7, we now have an inheritance, an inheritance of the hope of eternal life. Then, in verse 8, Paul returns to the answer of verse 4. He returns to this idea that, that we should live differently because the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared. He starts to answer the question. He has this gospel interruption. Then he gets back to the question by saying, this is a trustworthy saying. The summary of the gospel I just gave you is trustworthy. Believe it, Paul says. And I want you to insist on it, he says. I want you to insist on this gospel that I have just summarized. Why, we ask, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on the gospel so that believers will be careful to devote themselves to good works. So just catch the summary then of this passage. Paul is saying, hey, we used to be just as much of a disaster as anybody else that's out there in the world. We used to be foolish, we used to be disobedient, we used to be rebellious, and so it was expected that we would be quarrelsome, that we would be contentious, that we might even be a little bit pompous. We were unfit for any good work. But now, verse 4, grace has saved us. Grace has saved, we've been saved, not because of our works, but because of God's mercy. We've been made new by the Holy Spirit and possess the power of the Holy Spirit to do what we could not do before, namely, devote ourselves to good works. Paul's saying, hey, connect the dots from the gospel you believe to the life that you practically live. I just want to pause here for a minute to try and just press this gospel way of thinking in, into, our, into our minds this evening, an application for our minds in terms of how we think about the gospel. And it's so important that we take this pause because um, the gospel life, Christian behavior is so misunderstood in our world today. And I don't even mean by like people outside the church. I mean by people inside the church. I mean by Christians. I mean by, by like me and by, and by, by you. We know from, from surveys that the, the majority of Christians understand the gospel life in a form that we would call legalism. They would say, obey or God will get you. Why should you live a good life? Why should you do good works? Because if you don't, God's going to get you. Right? Some don't believe in legalism. They believe in what, what we would call a kind of licentiousness, which is, you know, obey or not, it doesn't really matter because God is going to forgive you. Good works, the life you live doesn't, doesn't matter all that. We know then that other people would have a belief that we call like the, the kind of prosperity approach to the gospel, which is obey and God will bless you. So obey and he'll get you, or obey or not, doesn't really matter, he'll forgive you, or obey and, and God will bless you. And, and perhaps we see these patterns of thinking, if we're honest with ourselves, um, appearing in our own lives from time to time, okay? This legalistic approach, um, diagnostic in our hearts, uh, whenever we think of God as 
an unhappy parent frowning because of our latest report card? What is the expression on God's face when you think of him looking at you? Uh, Sometimes we fall into licentiousness where we think of God as just this kind of benign granddad and we can kind of do what we want and it doesn't matter all that much. Sometimes we ourselves fall into the kind of prosperity gospel way of thinking by thinking, well, you know, I've done things right. I've worked hard. I I studied. I did this. I did that. I did the next thing. So, So life should now work out for me. God should now deliver because I've upheld my side of the bargain. And it's so important for us to understand that the gospel is none of those things. The gospel way of thinking is profoundly different to all of those ways of thinking. The gospel comes to us and says, yes, God has been kind to us, not because we've earned it, because of grace. And that grace that saved us now frees us as the Holy Spirit empowers us to live new lives for God. And this gospel way of thinking completely contradicts those other ways of thinking. Completely contradicts legalism. Because no, we don't obey in order to be saved. That, that's legalism. We, we obey because we already have been saved. That's gospel thinking. And this gospel way of thinking directly contradicts licentiousness. It doesn't matter how you live. You say, how, having been loved by one in such a way, having been lavished with such grace, why would you not want to live for this kind of God? And this gospel way of thinking also completely contradicts the kind of prosperity gospel by saying, no, friends, we don't live our best life now. <laughs> Our best life is yet to come. The hope of eternal life that Paul describes in verse 7. We expect a life of difficulty and struggle and trial. No, 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 that's, that's not how we're going to frame the way in which we live our lives here on earth. Instead, we are going to be a people who understand that because of the past, because of what Christ has done on the cross, and because of the future, because of the fact that Christ is coming again to make all things new, we live in the present, in his pleasure, with his power, to live lives of joy and freedom for him that he is already pleased with us in his son and that he has empowered us through his Holy Spirit to be all that he intended for us to be and do all that he has intended for us to do. Connect the dots between the gospel we believe and the life that we live. Now that we have been loved by Christ, let's figure out what it means to live like Christ in work, home, play, intentionally ask, how would the gospel call me to live out this part of my day? In the office with the work that you have to do, the paper that you have to turn in, the colleague or uh, peer that you have to interact with, how is the gospel calling you to, to, to do that? In, in your home with uh, your roommates or your uh, relatives, how is the gospel calling you to, to love them and serve them? In play in your, your free time, how is God calling you to prioritize the use of your, your time and your resources and your, your energy? Starting each day, another reason why just daily time with the Lord is so important. Starting each day by asking, okay, God, if this gospel is true, if all these things that I say I believe are true, how is that going to change how I actually live today? Connect the dots. Okay. I've impressed that tried to press that way of, of, of thinking about the gospel life into our, into our minds. I want to close just with, with two applications that kind of emerged uh, as I reflected on this text. They were helpful for me. I hope they'll be, be helpful for you as well as we think about this idea of 
gospel living, of, of joyful obedience. First one is this. Let's not forget. Like, hey, don't forget that go, the, the gospel life, joyful obedience, is great for us. It is really, really good for us. Um, and I don't mean in the same way that broccoli is, okay? I mean it is life at its fullest to live like Christ. Uh, remember what the alternative is, right? The, the, the alternative to joyful obedience is sin. And sin never makes you happy. Now, it promises that it will. And it holds out the promise of some sort of joy, some sort of fulfillment, some sort of pleasure. That's why in the moment we're tempted to sin. Sin has a way of like casting a spell, of enchanting us to believe that, yes, if I do these things, even though I kind of know they're not right, if I do these things, then I'm going to get something. I'm going to get some sort of joy, some sort of pleasure, some sort of fulfillment or satisfaction that I'm not going to have if I don't do this. And let's just remember that sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. It just doesn't make us happy, and it never will. And I think we all know this because I think we all know that we were made for so much more than that. We were made for so much more than sin. We were made for this life of joyful obedience. Some examples. Um, I think we all know that we weren't made for impurity. And we know this because, like, nobody ever looked at pornography then said, man, I feel really good about myself now. I am living the life that I want to live. I am being the man, I am being the woman that I was always intended to be. Why? Because we know we weren't made for that. We know we were made for real relationships. Even though they're complicated, even though they're awkward, even though they're messy, even though they involve a huge amount of sacrifice, we know that through those real relationships and engaging with real people, we live life without regret and actually feel grateful for the lives that we have. Sin doesn't make us happy. Joyful obedience does. Or, or think about materialism, just as a second example. We know that, that materialism will never make us happy. And we know that. Because we know that, like... No one ever got, you know, that next possession and said, okay, now I'm happy. Like, the iPhone 37, okay? Now I'm happy, right? Now it is well with my soul. I've made it. Because I have the latest tech, I have the latest, you know, promotion, the latest home, the latest Instagram photo, the latest thing I can use to compare myself to, to someone else and feel, feel good about myself or at least feel like I'm keeping up with them. Like we just know those things don't make us happy. And we know, we know that they never will. Because we know that God has created us for more. Do you know tonight, you have been made, you've been created by God in his image. And your soul has such capacity. It has such an appetite, such a desire for meaning and purpose and joy that it would not be satisfied supposing you owned everything on the entire earth. Your soul cannot be filled by stuff. And yet, don't we also know that Christ and his surpassing worth, just one drop of him is enough. Or take as a third example. 
The third example of how sin doesn't make us happy, but joyful obedience does. Even just the example of this text with how we go about the using our words. This command not to speak evil. We know this. We know that we weren't meant to beat other people down. That we weren't meant to use our words to get our own way. That we weren't meant to use our own words to just win every argument. But that God has called us to use our words in a way that is honoring to him and good for others. Doesn't it feel much better? We know this. In the moment where you issue that witty one-liner, you feel smug. Okay? There's temporary joy when you like crush an opponent. Okay? And then later there's regret. Joy and regret. Superficial, shallow joy and regret. But you know when you've said something that's been really meaningful to someone, really encouraged them? That there's a pleasure in that that sin could never, could never achieve. We know that there's a better way to live, that sin will never make us happy, but that joyful obedience will. That gospel life, believe this, friends, will deliver more fulfillment than anything else on earth. So don't go, let's not go, and bark up all those other trees, money, sex, and power, as if they're going to ever make us happy. The only thing that will satisfy is life with Christ. Following him is the only thing that will really make us happy. Believe that the gospel life, joyful obedience, friends, it's great for us. It's great for us. Second closing application. Thank you for hanging with me. We're nearly done. Second application is, is that uh, the gospel life of joyful obedience, it, it's great for us, but it's also great for our world. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's great for our neighborhoods and it's great for our communities and it's great for our campuses and it's great for our city and it's great for our state and our nation and even our world. It is great for others when Christians live in joyful obedience. So throughout this letter, Paul has reiterated a couple of times that there's a a definite connection between the lives that we live and the reputation and reception of the gospel. Now, isn't that a challenging thing? Paul's saying, listen, see your life. Your life makes the gospel more attractive or less attractive. Your life makes the gospel easier to believe or harder to believe. And if you live a life of joyful obedience, it makes the gospel attractive. It makes the gospel easier to believe. And, it, and it's therefore really good for the world. So, a couple of years ago, I'm in Chattanooga, Okay. I'm at some conference, I'm in a hotel, I'm unsupervised, so I get up early in the morning and I go for a run. And then, plodding along, it hits me, right? The smell of Krispy Kreme, okay? Can you you smell it, right? Um, I stopped and I saw the sign, right? And what does the sign say? Hot now, not hot earlier, okay? Not hot later, but hot now. Like, now is the time, okay? You can't, no, you, like, you can't finish your run and come back. They may not be hot then, right? They are hot, and they are hot now. Now is a chance, right? And I was in that store and bought my dozen for $7.99. You can ask me, you, you can ask me how many of the dozen I ate, and I won't answer you, okay? That's how it's going to be, right? Mmm. You know the near liquidy taste of donuts that you can swallow whole? Yeah. <laughs> the aroma on my run. Paul is saying, hey, do you understand that your life can be like that? 
do you understand that your life can be like that? <laughs> that you can live in such a way that the aroma of your life stops people in their tracks. They're running along and then they stop because <laughs> something smells good. Yeah? And then they look at the sign, right? Not hot now, but Christ. Yeah? And some of them will even come on in. Some of them will even come on in and eat. Paul says, our lives can smell that way. And, and here's the thing that's really powerful to me about this text. It's not like some far-fetched remote possibility in some far-off distant land that we could be that way. He's saying, no, we can actually be that way. We can actually be that way by being the kind of model citizens that Paul's describing. When we no longer join our friends or our colleagues in ridiculing other friends or our boss. When we start to live with humility in our, na- in our neighborhoods and, and love other people as, as we ourselves have been loved. When we start to live peaceful, gentle, respectful lives where we don't always have to win every argument and we don't always have to get the last word. When we just live simple lives of joyful obedience. Remember we said, we've said in this series, most of the Christian life isn't rocket science. Most of it isn't like, wow, I did not realize that I was or was not meant to live in that way. It's simple things. It's kindness. It's generosity. It's love. It's living in such a way that we begin to spread the aroma of Christ. Now listen, Paul's not naive, okay? Can we remember Paul, Paul who wrote this letter, okay? He understood the hardships of the Christian life too. And he's not naive to think that if you live this way, everywhere you go, people are just going to fall down and say, this smells great, what must I do to be saved? And yet he still believes and still knows that living this way will give us not just an audience with others, but an attraction to others. That they themselves might stop and even come on in. So, I'm done. The gospel. It's the gospel and the gospel alone that helps us understand our place here on earth and the importance of the lives we live now, right? Legalism doesn't do that. License doesn't do that. Prosperity doesn't do that. It's only joyful obedience to the God who has saved us that helps us understand why our lives matter now. We connect the dots from the gospel uh, that we believe to the lives that we actually live. And so as we run around in this town so busy from one thing to the next, let's just stop to savor our Savior, remember all that we have in Him, and then let's start to live like Him, that other people would smell Christ on us and even come on in and eat. Friends, let's pray together. (laughs) Father, um, (laughs) what kind of gospel is this? that requires nothing of us on the front end and then gives everything to us on the back end. That is uh, a gospel of, of good news and great joy. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive the gospel on the front end, that we wouldn't try to dress ourselves up, we wouldn't try to um, clean ourselves off, that we wouldn't try to do things in order to earn your favor, but would simply accept it as it's given to us by your grace. And then, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live out the beauty of this life on the back end, to connect the gospel, that it would really change and shape who we are, and that it would make a difference to the lives that we lead. Um, Not sometime, uh, not next week, uh, but tonight. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.